Well, imagine that you have made something or you have tried to make something and on that very first attempt, it doesn't go altogether well. It's well known that Thomas Edison, when he invented the incandescent light bulb, that's that old-fashioned light bulb that has the filament inside, and that when he invented that, that he failed dozens of times, supposedly as many as a hundred times. And that when he was later asked about it, he said, oh, I didn't fail. He said, I learned a hundred ways not to make the light bulb. And so has this attitude of positivity about all those times that he tried something and plugged it in, whatever kind of apparatus he had in his shop, and plugged it in and it didn't work. And so if you've ever tried to make something or tried to do something around the house, you may know what it's like for it to not go completely well the first time. But imagine if everybody that encountered resistance just gave up. The title of this morning's message is God at Work. Because God is at work in ways that we cannot always see. God has transforming power. Now, in a place called Corinth, it was a unique place and there were lots of cultures that had gathered there. I used to say Corinth had a population about the size of Nashville, but Nashville has grown and so... Corinth had a population of what Nashville was maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Probably estimated at about half a million people in the city of Corinth. But because it was a major east-west trade center with ports on the east and west side of the city, there were lots of different cultures represented in that town. There were lots of different cultures represented in the church of Christ that gathered there at the city of Corinth. Of course, we say the church that gathered there. Churches in the first century, when Paul writes his letters, are essentially a series of house churches. They didn't have buildings with big auditoriums like what we enjoy today and have enjoyed for the last, you know, several centuries. But in the first, second, third centuries, it was a series of house churches in a place, even with half a million people. Christians at that time, thinking about things we take for granted, Christians in that time were not allowed to own property. Were not, you know, the the church of Christ, the Christians were not recognized as a body that could function publicly in the way we can today. And so, Paul writes this letter to these folks, and we know that they've got a lot of issues, probably based on all these different cultures coming together. Imagine if this morning, we had people that looked vastly different from one another. A lot of different skin colors, a lot of different languages spoken, some people that might struggle 
with the predominant language of the day. And so, as you can imagine, and and again, some of them even coming out of a background where they engaged on a regular basis in pagan worship. And so, Paul now is addressing this group of people, and he wants them to understand a few things. So I invite you to join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollo watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. And then the next two verses are what Jason read earlier. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wide builder, and someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul making it clear there that there's only one foundation. That the foundation on which we should all be built on is quite simple. It is Christ and Christ alone. There are some folks today that call themselves Christians. And they have sort of what I would call a... A Christ and philosophy. I've talked about this before, but it's been a while. You you take the the Latter-day Saints, more commonly referred to as the Mormons, for example. And if you've ever had them knock on your door, I don't see many uh, Mormon missionaries in uh, Lewis County. And so that I say, woo, thank you, Lord. Uh, But if you've ever seen them, they're the guys in the white shirts with the black ties. And uh, the issue that I take with them is the same issue I take with the Jehovah's Witnesses. They don't acknowledge my Christianity. I remember having some Jehovah's Witnesses knock on our door. We lived in Kentucky. And I I told these folks, hey, I appreciate what you're doing. But I'm, I, am, uh, I am firm in my faith. I, am, I, I know where I'm headed. I am absolutely, I am, I am assured of my salvation. And as a matter of fact, I serve as a deacon at the Columbia Avenue Church of Christ on the other side of town. 
And they said, well, you know, could we come in and talk to you? And I'm like, well, what do we need to talk about? Well, we wanted to, you know, I've already told you. I've, you know, but could we come in? Okay. Uh, And so I just had to figure out the most polite way possible to send these folks down the road. And I remember one night, a small group met at our home and and so I had gone out back and uh, that's where people parked was behind the house where our garage was and our driveway and so I was kind of seeing some people off and uh, this was I think the week before Super Bowl Sunday and all of a sudden I hear a voice call out of the darkness hey how's it going and I'm looking and I it wasn't real well lit back there and I'm like well hey who's there and so then as they, as they got to the driveway and could kind of step into the light, I saw that it was two Latter-day Saint missionaries. And so then we began a, a conversation. And of course he began with, well, who do you like in the Super Bowl? And, uh, and then it quickly became, hey, could we talk to you about Jesus? And I said, I already know him. Matter of fact, just facilitated a small group in my house. Had a group of believers over. Just like they did in the first century. And, but, that wasn't good enough. They did not accept my Christianity. They have, if you look into what they believe, they have a Christ and philosophy. In other words, Jesus isn't enough. And church, that's a problem. Anybody says, oh, Jesus, and let's talk about somebody else. To the Latter-day Saints, it's Joseph Smith, I believe. And then different groups have their, it's Jesus and something else. And no, Jesus paid it all, right, church? Jesus is the Son of God. Our devotional tonight is going to be talking about Jesus as the one we confess. But Paul is saying here to these folks, he's saying, Hey, you've not been ready for solid food yet. If you know what it's like to feed a small child, they start out with milk, right? And then they work their way up to the other stuff, the rice or cereal or whatever it is after that. And then pretty soon we're on to strained carrots and green beans and all that fun, yummy looking stuff. He says in his most sarcastic voice. (coughs) Excuse me. But, but yeah, Paul is saying, folks... You've got some quarreling among you. And no, this is preemptive comment here. Uh, I didn't choose the scripture because there's quarreling among the body of believers here. Uh, We hadn't been around each other enough to quarrel, have we, church? But but he's saying, he's saying, listen. He said, y'all need to grow up. That's what he's saying here. Y'all need to grow up. He said, you know, there's going to come a time you you need solid food. You need green beans and carrots and then the stuff that comes after that. You need protein. And right now, see, you're not ready for that. You're like infants. And it's important to understand, you know, folks in Corinth, it's very much a Greek culture. And so what what were the Greeks known for? They're philosophers. And so he's coming at them. This language of infancy is a language that they would have understood 
in light of a place that prides itself on its philosophers. And so calling them infants gets their attention. He says, y'all are just babies in the faith. And he says, but y'all need to start growing up. Because people that are saved people need to act like what church saved people. And then he goes on to say this thing that I think is just so beautiful about how God is at work. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. A field in which to be, uh, to be turned and then planted and then to produce something, to produce something good. You are a building. And that foundation is Christ. And then we are built on that foundation. But he's saying, hey... You know, it, it's, I'm, I'm just part of the process here. But the one who plants, the one that waters, ultimately we don't matter. It is God and God alone who's doing the real work here. That we as co-laborers, we're going to inherit something according to what we've done. But that's not our concern now. Our concern is to just do what we can and trust that God will take care of the rest. I've been reading a lot of Richard Beck lately. He is a psychology professor at Abilene Christian University in Texas. And I think I may have mentioned him once before, but uh, Beck uh, has a prison ministry. And he goes to a maximum security prison outside of Abilene, Texas. Every Monday evening, he takes one gentleman with him. And as you can imagine, when he explains some of the process of what it takes for him and his co-teacher of the Monday night Bible study to enter to enter that prison. He says they have to be patted down multiple times at different checkpoints. That they have to x-ray his Bible and anything else that he brings into that facility to make sure that he's not slipping them some kind of contraband. But what I love to hear Beck talk about is, uh, is, is... the transformation that he sees, the growth that he sees in the 50-some-odd men that gather for that Monday evening Bible study every week. And he says, oh, if you could hear us sing. And I can just imagine what that's like. People that have no inhibition about who's, uh, about who's watching them. You know, people that have given up all of their freedoms, some for the rest of their life. After all, it's a maximum security facility. Many of them are serving life sentences. Some of them without the possibility of parole. They know that they're never going to be outside of that place called the French Robertson Unit. Until they get to go be with the Lord. But Beck talks about 
the transformation even inside those walls that he sees in those people. Because God, church, does not call us to be a stagnant people. If our faith is exactly where it was two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, i got to break the news to you, that's not healthy. That's not what God desires for us, church. He wants us to grow in wisdom and stature. He wants us to grow in our knowledge of God's Word. He wants our faith to be deepened. Deepened in such a way that other people see a difference in us. This past Monday night, gathering with some other ministers in the community, uh, our faith-based recovery coalition, and one of the, the gentlemen in the room said that he was at Walmart a few days before. And he mentioned this couple. I, I don't know them and I won't mention them by name. But he mentioned a couple and a couple that had, had struggled with drug addiction some time ago. And he said, I just kind of had my cart there. And he said, they didn't know I was watching them. But he said, I just stood there for just a, a little bit and just watched them. He said, something we all take for granted, being able to go to the store, being able to buy groceries or whatever we need for our household. And he says, it wasn't that long ago. He said, you roll back the clock a few years. And he said, you know, I wouldn't have expected their marriage to last. I wouldn't have expected them to be able to have custody of their kids. I would not have expected them to be able to hold down jobs knowing how deep they were in addiction. But he said, what a glorious thing it was to just kind of watch for just a few minutes somebody as a a married couple going out and shopping together. And knowing how much they've achieved in those last few years. And then of course, we in that room, we know the source of that goodness. That it's God at work. They are people that are part of a church family that meets not far from where we are at this moment. I reached out to their minister, not part of our coalition but someone I know and I reached out to him and and he said oh absolutely he said you know my son is friends with with one of their children good friends and what a glorious thing that is now it's it's hard for us to share that same perspective because you don't don't know the couple you didn't see them at the time that they needed that transformation But church family, God is at work in the lives of people. God is at work every moment of every day. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus uh, tells a parable in verse 6, but we're going to... We're going to read the, the verses that, 
that precede that. Beginning in Luke 13, verse 1. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, Jesus, when some of these folks uh, had uh, asked him about a, a particular incident, then Jesus responds and he makes reference to a tragedy that everyone would have been familiar with. It would be no different than us talking today. And unfortunately, we live at a time when you know, the, the news media makes us aware of every tragedy going on in the world. And so you think about any event where you heard about a group of people perishing tragically... And then you can relate to this moment where Jesus is saying, hey, you know, sin is sin. And everyone needs to repent. Everyone is guilty of sin. Everyone needs to repent. Or they're going to be judged accordingly. But then verse 6, then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. And he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, Leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not... Then cut it down. Now the first part of this, Jesus is directing, these first, what, five verses, Jesus is directing toward all of the nation of Israel. Saying, hey, you need to figure out who the Messiah is, that he's standing right before you. You need to repent of your sins. Or there's going to be judgment that befalls you. And then he switches to something that's more personal. Saying here that using this example in this parable of this fig tree and the owner says, well, that thing hasn't borne fruit yet. It's time to just get rid of it. Because it's using up some of the nutrients in the soil and it's not bearing fruit. It serves us no purpose. And the servant says, well, let's give it more time. More time. And maybe, just maybe, given another season, we will see it start to produce fruit. Now church, make no mistake, what this parable is about is how God is displeased. God shakes His head. God probably sighs a deep sigh when he sees his servants who aren't bearing fruit. Because saved people 
need to act like saved people. And God's saying, boy, a servant that doesn't bear fruit just isn't much of a servant. A child that does not reflect my glory, how can they really be called my child? But then we see that there's this response that says, oh, just just give it more time. Wasn't that long ago, I delivered a message in which I declared, there's hope for us all yet, right church? That person that we know that we might see, maybe you went to school with them and you know how intelligent they were. Maybe you know how capable they were, what opportunities they were given. All that unfulfilled potential. And in a moment, you might be tempted to sort of just shake your head. But as children of God, He certainly hasn't given up on us, has He? And so why should we be people who shake our head at someone else? We should be people that nod our head and say, you know what? There's hope for you yet. Because God has certainly extended grace and mercy to each one of us. In the 1700s, 1769 to be precise, a a French inventor, a member of their military, by the name of Nicolas Joseph Cugnot, made the first, designed the first horseless carriage. Now, I would have thought it would have been a lot later than 1769. Now, this thing was driven, propelled by steam. And it went, the first version, the the 1769 model, we might say, went about two kilometers per hour. No, actually it was one kilometer per hour. That's 0.62 miles if you're keeping score at home. 0.62 miles in an hour. Now, I'm not exactly the most gifted athlete in the world. But in an hour, even at not a real good pace, I can go five times farther than that. This thing weighed about two and a half tons. And oh, by the way, it was hard to steer. I think it was the second model of this that could actually go about two and a half kilometers per hour. Hey, there was improvement there, people. That was uh, part of the first automobile accident, you might say. Because the guy driving it steered it into a brick wall. And uh, and people got hurt, unfortunately. And so, not sure how they repaired his wall. I don't know who, who took uh, responsibility for that. But, you know, there was no Geico. There was no State Farm, no Nationwide back then. But imagine, imagine if the world had given up on the automobile based on the inventions of Mr. Cugno. Just imagine that 
we've still got those wooden things outside where we, you know, tie our horses to when we come to church in the morning. No, we've come a long way since then, haven't we, church? We've now got vehicles that they're improving all the time that have batteries or that you plug into a socket in your garage at night and charge them up. But imagine if the world had just thrown up their hands at the idea of the horseless carriage based on what you see on the screen right here. But no, that's not what happened, was it? Because other people said, okay, he was on to something, but there's a better way. And then people bought into it, and now we all drove here this morning. Okay, Stacy and I didn't, but the rest of y'all drove here this morning in a horseless carriage. Because you don't give up. Don't give up on yourself. You don't give up on people you love. You don't give up on the people you meet. That God is at work. And we need to be people who are growing ourselves. We need to be people who make sure that we're not the tree in the vineyard that is failing to produce fruit. But we also need to be people who encourage others to bear fruit. Who are willing to invite people to church that next time. Or sit down and tell them about our faith. As we let the Word of God have the final word this morning. Galatians 6 verses 9 and 10. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone. Hear that again, church. When we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. If you're with us this morning and you have not yet begun the journey of bearing fruit, we offer the invitation. We offer the waters of baptism that you can confess Jesus as Lord and begin life anew. And if you're with us this morning and there's some need that you have that we can pray with you about, the invitation's offered for that reason as well. Let's stand and sing.